to be sent out into the world. And for some, of course, that sending out is simply what happens on a Monday morning. You go out to your place of work, you go out into your communities, whatever it may be that you will be doing tomorrow morning. And the calling is simply to be a Christian disciple in that place. To be clear about who you are and what God has called you to be and to do. But to do that in your place of work or in your community or in your home, wherever it may be. So for some it is that's call of simply being a Christian disciple in that place. Being ready to answer the questions when people come to you to ask about your Christian faith or what it is you did over the weekend or whatever else it may be. Being ready to give a reason for the hope that you have within you, as Peter puts in his letter in the Bible. But for some, the calling, the sending out, if you like, is not just to the workplace and the community and so on, but actually in a very deliberate way, being sent out to share the gospel of Jesus Christ and indeed to gather others to come and worship him. And that's what church planting is all about, really. That's part of my background, and part of why I guess I keep coming back to this passage again and again, and part of why resourcing churches has been part of my thinking for a long time. That's realisation, actually, that there are, as we heard earlier, 93% of the population, very roughly, who have almost no meaningful contact with the church and who won't ever have any meaningful contact with the church unless we, as the church, go out in obedience to talk with them and to be a witness through the way we live our lives. Now, I'm very struck that within the Bible passage, Jesus sends them out with a particular instruction. And the thing that's always puzzled me about it is the instruction is to take nothing with them. So they're sent out to the towns and villages, and they're simply told to, yes, proclaim the good news of the kingdom, and to heal people, in other words, to enact the kingdom, but they're to take nothing with them as they do it, to go, if you like, empty hands, to rely on the people that they go to, and to see where they get offered hospitality or where they don't get offered hospitality. Now, I've always puzzled with that, about that and wondered, why is that? Is it simply because of the urgency, that there's a sense in which they shouldn't have to stop and think about the sort of material things of this world? Or is it something about just not getting distracted by other things? Or is there something more? Well, let me just tell you a quick story, and um, uh, forgive me if, uh, if you may have heard this before, like many preachers, I only have a limited number of stories that I, uh, that I tell. <laughs> so, and this is about my time in, in, uh, in West Africa. I, uh, together with my wife, we went to serve in a little country called Guinea in, uh, in West Africa some while ago, and I went very much feeling it was in obedience to God's call to be involved in the work of church planting. My wife's a doctor, she was involved in primary healthcare work there as well. But the church where I was asked to go and be vicar was a very small uh, rural area. It was one of the oldest churches in that part of West Africa. The first missionaries had gone there, had literally sort of sailed up the river from the coast 
I decided this was a good place to stop and uh, had been welcomed by the local people and so they had indeed built a church there. But when I arrived there, in some 150 or so years later, the house where I lived was probably about, I don't know, a couple of hundred yards away from the church. And every morning as I walked from my house to the church to go and say my prayers, I walked past the gravestones of those first missionaries who had founded the church. And on every gravestone was written not just the date of their birth and the date of their death, as we would do, but also the date that they had arrived in that part of West Africa. And without exception, the difference between the date of their arrival in West Africa and the date of their death was no more than one or two years. They had no defences against the diseases and so on of that part of the world. And they knew that. There are stories told of people going to that part of the world who, when they set sail from Portsmouth or Plymouth or wherever, quite literally packed their belongings in a coffin. They knew what they were signing up for. They knew that they would not be returning to the UK again. And yet they went. And they went with a great desire to see the church planted and the gospel of Jesus Christ proclaimed in that part of the world. So every morning, as I walked, as I say, from my house to the church, I was reminded of the sacrifice that went in to the founding of that church. Extraordinarily humbling to realize that people had literally given their lives that this church should be here. And I was very grateful too as I popped my malaria tablets walking along knowing that it wasn't quite the same deal for me. But the interesting thing for me was yes to be reminded about the commitment of those people and the extraordinary sacrifice that they've made. But then when I arrived at the church building, as I say, walking across the, uh, the graveyard to the church building, uh, what was there was basically a stone building. It was an impressive, uh, simple structure, but still very impressive. The story goes that the first missionaries, when they arrived there, they invited the local people to build a church. And the local people agreed. They went off and actually quarried stone uh, to build this church, despite the fact most of their homes were, were literally mud huts. But they quarried this stone, they transported it, they built this impressive structure. And then the story goes that those first missionaries decided that in order for it really to be a proper church, uh, it needed stained glass windows. <laughs> so they wrote back home and they got stained glass windows shipped out from the UK and sailed up the river to this little village in the middle of the African bush so that their church could have proper stained glass windows. And if that's not enough, they also decided that in order to be a proper church, it really needed a pipe organ as well. So they had a pipe organ shipped out in all its little pieces and then assembled it in the church in this African bush. And that's not enough as well. And they decided, I'm drinking, you've got to slightly sit down there. Is that blue or purple? I don't know, the carpet down the middle. Anyway, they decided that to be a proper church, actually, you need a red carpet down the middle, middle aisle. So they had a, a red carpet shipped out from the UK and put it into this little village church. Now, all these things have long since gone over the years. They've uh, been eaten by termites or uh, succumbed to the humidity or been stolen or whatever, but I inherited a shell of a building, basically. 
But you see, the extraordinary thing was that these people were hugely committed to the point of being willing to give their lives for this cause. And yet, and I say this in all humility, knowing that every generation does this, what they actually did was to take a very particular model of church, if you like. They had a very particular picture in their minds of what church is, and they simply transplanted it from one place to another. The typical village Anglican church in the rural England. And that's what it uses to start in the African bush. And we can smile, as I say, that's a little naive. And yet I look back on my time there and I know I made just the same mistakes, I'm sure, in all sorts of different ways. Why is it that Jesus told his disciples not to take anything with them? I believe it's because he was sending them on a journey of learning. He wasn't sending them with the answer to everything. That by going out and proclaiming kingdom and healing people, that that would suddenly solve everything and that actually they would have nothing more to learn. Far from it. He knew that for them it was going to be a journey of discovery and of learning. And therefore he invited them to be dependent on the people he was, they, he was sending them to. To receive their hospitality and to learn from them as they went. So my friends, one of the things I want to say to you this morning, for those who are going out, being part of that team sent out in the city to Grange Park, is you're going on a journey of learning and discovery. And please beware that temptation of taking a particular picture of church with you and saying, this is what it's going to be like. Because actually you're going to need to discover what it's going to be like when you spend time talking with people and living alongside them. They will help teach you what church needs to be like for them and their context. And that's why we travelled nights. So the rhythm of discipleship, breathing in and breathing out, which is true for every, different, every one of us, although the sending out may look different, and different for different people. But then the travelling nights. And then finally also this little story of the feeding of the 5,000. So it's always intrigued me again about why does Luke place this story at this point? You may know within the different gospel stories, many of these stories come in the, in the different gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and so on, um, but they're placed in different orders within the stories. So why is it that Luke chooses to place the feeding of the 5,000 alongside the sending out of the 12? And why is it, indeed, when you read on to Luke chapter 10, you discover actually you get almost the same story again, except this time it's not the sending out of the 12, but the sending out of the 70 or 72, depending on which translation you have. So somewhere between the beginning of Luke chapter 9 and the beginning of Luke chapter 12, a multiplication takes place from 12 to 72. And I think that's why the feeding of the 5,000 is one of the stories that comes in between. Let me explain. So it's almost as if this story of the feeding of the 5,000 men is an enacted parable. This is Jesus explaining, this is what it will look like, being sent out to people. So, they're out in the countryside, Jesus has been teaching all day. 
They're tired at this point, they're getting hungry. The disciples sense it within the crowds. And so they say to Jesus, we must get something to eat for these people. And Jesus says to them, you feed them. You feed them. Now he knows perfectly well, they can't do it. They haven't brought any food with them. There's no shops around the corner that can just go and buy something. They can't do it. And yet Jesus says to them the impossible task. You feed them. So what do they do? Well, they go and find what they can. It turns out there's somebody who's got just a few loaves of bread and some fish. It says nothing compared with the size of the crowd in front of them. It's ridiculous how small a crowd it is. And yet they bring it to Jesus and say, here you are, this is all we've got. And what does Jesus do? He takes the bread and the fish. And we're told very simply that he gives thanks to God for this food. And then he breaks it. And then he hands it back to the disciples and they go and distribute it to the crowds. And we're told that every single person had their fill. So much so that there was even food left over and they collected it afterwards. Friends, what's going on here? It's, yes, it's about multiplication, but I suggest to you even more than that. Jesus sets them the impossible task. They know they can't do it. Just as when we are sent out, we know we can't do it. But we bring to him what we have. However tiny, however insignificant it appears in the face of all the need around us, however weak and vulnerable we may feel, we bring what we have and we lay it on the feet of Jesus. And then we're told that Jesus takes it and gives thanks to God. And then he breaks it. And I wonder what that means for each one of us. He takes what we offer and he breaks it. And then he hands it back to us. And we find that we can pass it on to others. And they are fed. And friends, however you're feeling this morning about being part of a resourcing church, I simply invite you not to worry about the details. Uh, Invited to travel wide. But I simply invite you to bring what you have to Jesus. However small and insignificant that feels to you, and to offer it to Him. I can guarantee you, He will give thanks to God for whatever it is that you offer to Him. But I also warn you that when He takes it, He does break it. I take that to mean, in some sense, He reshapes us and remolds us. That can be painful, that can be hard. But it's the only route, as Luke sets it out for us, the only route for us then to be used by God 
in helping to feed multitudes. Should we take just a moment of quiet an opportunity to, for you to reflect? In a moment I'm going to invite you, if you want to, only if you feel ready to, to say together the commitments of a resourcing church. Words will be up on the screen and I'll talk you through it, but a moment to reflect on your response to what God has done for you. Claim the good news of your kingdom and to bring healing to others. And yet you know that we can't do this. And so you invite us to learn from you, to learn from those to whom we're sent. And you invite us to offer what we have. Thank you that you rejoice when we offer what we have. And you give thanks for that. And thank you that you take it and you multiply it. And so we bring ourselves to you today, saying, Take us and mold us and use us in your kingdom. For we make this our prayer in the name of Jesus.